verse 21. Dear brethren, let us hear the word of God. Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction? <clears throat> Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of His Holy Word to us this evening. Well, friends, if there is a doctrine despised by those who reject the doctrine of grace, it is reprobation. <clears throat> John Wesley vowed that he would chase the fiend, reprobation, to his own hell and every doctrine connected with it. Wesley and others considered this doctrine as destructive of his entire concept of God and man. And I would say, and rightly so, God is God and not man. And all things are in the hands of our God and not men. He believed, if reprobation were true, there could be no such thing as moral responsibility, which is a misunderstanding of the doctrine. But so those who despise and misconstruct and misconstrue what we hold from the Word of God uh, often bring that charge. And unfortunately, uh, many times those who uh, love the Word of God and love the truth of God's sovereignty do not study the issues well enough to be able to present them in a way uh, that, um, <clears throat> that don't bring some of the false charges laid against us. I will happily take Mr. Wesley's charge that we change his doctrine of God. That's fine. I would hope that would have been the case. <clears throat> Nevertheless, it is a solemn doctrine for those of you here with us the first, uh, for the first time, this is somewhat of a solemn uh, study uh, to walk into. This is not one that I've even taught since I have been here, though I've mentioned it several times. <clears throat> now let me say, as we begin, this is a difficult doctrine, because it's tied to so many doctrines. It is a difficult doctrine because, especially in our day, it seems to paint a picture of God unworthy of His holy character. And for those who see it that way, I cannot help but uh, grieve with them because I understand, having at one time been on the other side of this theological fence, <clears throat> that their love for the love of God is, is noteworthy and it is something commendable. However, we must not take our most cherished doctrine <clears throat> and exalt it above any other portion of the Scripture. And we must come to the Word of God prepared to bow and to be instructed by our God whatever it says. We can trust that the God and Judge of the universe will do right. <clears throat> Secondly, <clears throat> this is a very sobering doctrine because it deals 
with the damnation of men. I cannot imagine a preacher anywhere on the planet rejoicing in preaching about damnation. Now, I do not apologize for this doctrine and do not take my subdued tones as some kind of uh, either uh, being embarrassed for God or ashamed of His Word or uh, um, apologetic for the doctrine found in its blessed pages. Not at all. As a matter of fact, I rejoice in every word of God. I am simply gripped by the sobriety of the subject uh, which we endeavor to uh, unfold this evening. This really is the kind of subject that ought to have four or five weeks of careful and intensive study. But since it is in the context of our expanded survey of looking at the, the doctrine of grace, uh, then I will attempt to finish looking at reprobation simply this evening. Now, that's my hope anyway. I don't know that I'll accomplish it. But <clears throat> it is my hope. Though it may seem strange for me to say four or five weeks, it is actually an extremely extensive study and uh, an issue to which the Lord has committed much Scripture. Unfortunately, the reason many seem to miss that is because the word reprobation doesn't show up in the Scripture often. And therefore, <clears throat> there are those who would say, well, I mean, it's hardly even mentioned. So, having said that, let me uh, press on a little bit more in, into what will be something of an extended introduction to what we're looking at tonight. I think it's important to lay some groundwork. <clears throat> some people call the belief in reprobation and election double predestination. Perhaps you've heard that terminology. Now, this is used as a contrast to those who believe in election unto eternal life, but who reject the idea of rejection. They reject the idea of reprobation. The Lutherans would be a good example. Uh, not Martin Luther's theology, but those who followed after him. Martin Luther was very, very solid on this very doctrine. And you can read him in The Bondage of the Will, and you will see some uh, in his customary powerful Language, uh, this set forth boldly. <clears throat> but the later Lutherans uh, found him too strong. As a matter of fact, it, uh, Philip Melanchthon, uh, who followed right on his heels uh, and began to write the, the first systematic theology for the Lutherans, uh, moved away from Luther's theology right away. <clears throat> but this is the doctrine that I think is unfortunate uh, to be tagged as double predestination. Uh, while there are even those who would call themselves reformed who do not believe in the doctrine of reprobation, double predestination is an unfortunate term. It is simply the doctrine of predestination as found in the Word of God. I would far rather say that they have, they believe in half predestination and that we believe in predestination. <clears throat> now, next introductory subject, very important. There are those who want these two ideas of 
election unto life and rejection separated. And they cannot be. And those who disagree with us that stand their ground and say uh, they, they go together are completely correct at that point. They understand the doctrine well enough at that point. Now, W.G.T. Shedd, I trust some of you know his name. If you don't, he was his, uh, his dogmatics, uh, Christian dogmatics are an excellent, or dogmatic theology is an excellent set to have. Shedd says, uh, makes this observation in uh, his dogmatic theology, volume one. He says, if God does not elect a person, he rejects him. If God decides not to convert a sinner into a saint, he decides to let him remain a sinner. If God decides not to work in a man to will and to do of, to God, of God's will, <clears throat> he decides to leave the man to do, to, to will and to do according to his own will. Let me read that again. I didn't read that well. If God decides not to work in a man to will and to do according to God's will, he decides to leave the man to will and to do according to his own will. Now, if God purposes not to influence a particular human will to good, he purposes to allow that will to have its own way. When God effectually operates upon the human will, it is election. When God does not effectually operate upon the human will, it is reprobation. And he must do either the one or the other. Consequently, Whoever holds the doctrine of election must hold the antithetic doctrine of reprobation. Now, if you think that needs further support, let's hear the words of John Wesley again. Now, this is a time to pay careful attention to him. Wesley, going after those who said they believed in election but did not believe in God's rejection of anyone, says this, Indeed, there are some who assert the decree of election and not the decree of reprobation. They assert that God hath, by a positive, unconditional decree, chosen some to life and salvation, but not that he hath, by any such decree, devoted the rest of mankind to destruction. These are they to whom I would address myself first. I am verily persuaded that in the uprightness of your hearts you defend the decree of unconditional election, even in the same uprightness that wherein you reject and abhor that of unconditional reprobation. But consider, I entreat you, whether you are consistent with yourselves. Consider whether this election can be separate from reprobation, whether one of them does not imply the other, so that in holding one you must Hold both. He's, he's absolutely correct. He's, he's right. And, and I, I appreciate his evaluation there. And I appreciate his reproof to those who would be inconsistent. <clears throat> he then shows his readers that many of the greatest confessions and creeds of church history has held both doctrines. And then he ends up with a quote from Calvin himself. Nay, it is observable. Mr. Calvin speaks with utter contempt and disdain of all who endeavor to separate one from the other, who assert election without reprobation. Many, says he, as it were, to excuse God, 
on election and deny reprobation. Now, he's, this is Wesley quoting Calvin. And this is uh, <clears throat> from the Institutes. Uh, but this is quite silly and childish, for election cannot stand without reprobation. Whom God passes by, those he reprobates. It is one and the same thing. Back to Wesley. He follows this with several passages of Scripture which prove, quotation marks, election to his reader, and then remarks, to set this matter in a still clearer light, you need only answer one question. Is any man saved who is not elected? Is it possible that any not elected should be saved? If you say no, you put an end to the doubt. You espouse election and reprobation together. You confirm Mr. Calvin's words that without reprobation, election itself cannot stand. You allow, though, uh, though you were not sensible of it before, that whom God elects not, them he reprobates. Try whether it be possible in any particular case to separate election from reprobation. Close quote. You know, I, I do appreciate Wesley. I really do. And I appreciate his keen mind very often. I, only before the throne of God will we ever understand why men of such fervent love for Christ disagree but he certainly did on this point as a matter of fact when he wrote a when he wrote a catechism later one of the questions in that catechism was what is the antidote to the gospel and the answer was Calvinism now Wesley's point here is clear election and reprobation stand or fall together he is correct I agree with him wholeheartedly. There are those who believe the doctrine of election but do not believe rejection. Now, I agree with Mr. Wesley that if you hold one, you must hold the other. But not because John Calvin says so. And not because W.G.T. Shedd says so. And not for all of his wonderful learning and fervent blistering love for Christ because Mr. Wesley said so but because it is in the word of God plainly set forth by Paul as well as many other biblical writers of course many would stand at that point and say no you're reading the scripture wrong so I simply offer it before you and plead with the spirit of God to preserve you from my errors and that you would simply bow to scripture as you hear the voice of the living God so what do we mean then finally by reprobation? Let's begin looking at three things tonight. What is reprobation? Then, look at, then let's look at Old Testament testimony to reprobation and then New Testament testimony to reprobation. <clears throat> when we look at what Paul says, he says, Hath not the potter power over the clay? Now he's arguing with those that he knows are going to raise certain questions. And he knows that as he set forth this glorious exposition of God's sovereignty that we've looked at the last two weeks, and as he says, Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, on whom I will have compassion. And he says, now, those of you reading, and those of you struggling with what I'm saying, 
Can the potter not do with the clay what he wishes? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. Who does the making? The context of the verse is inescapable. You may redefine some things. You may uh, gang up a whole handful of other verses to attempt to uh, get a, a theological fulcrum to move this out of the way. But brethren, the verse stands and says that the potter is the one that makes both vessels. He makes both vessels. He doesn't say he made this vessel after that vessel chose him first. He makes both vessels. And in verse 22, he makes the point clear by saying, what if God, clearly showing us that the potter is God, and he may do with the vessels whatsoever he will. He says, what if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. Again, the context is very clear. From verse 21 to verse 22, the potter has the power over the clay. How is it that they are fitted for destruction? The potter. And that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had afore prepared unto glory. These are sobering passages, brethren. They're very sobering. The remarkable thing is that in anticipation of the objection to the sovereignty of God that he has set before us in this chapter, he says in verse uh, 19, Thou wilt say then unto me, Why doth he, God, yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? And at that particular point, we expect Paul, the one who sat at the feet of Gamaliel, a theologian par excellence, at least in, in, in my limited thinking, and in the thinking of those who have excellent minds, Paul was a genius, that he was genuinely, had such a massive mind, he should be rightfully considered a genius when you read his work and examine the brilliance of his arguments. We expect an exposition and an explanation, and he doesn't give one. What does he say at that point? Nay. Nay. But, O oh man, who art thou? Who are you? You know, before the Lord converted me, when I would read that, secretly, I burned with anger. I didn't like that. I really thought, this is one of the lamest answers. Here, here, I'm waiting for this great 
thunderbolt from the sky from Paul to answer this, this question about this sovereignty stuff. And what does he say? Who are you that replies to God? It was like when I, I demanded in my heart, not out loud, when I wanted my parents to explain to me why they wouldn't let me do this or that. You've got to come down to my level, lay this out, and explain it to me so that I can be satisfied. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul says, Who are you? God is God. And who are you that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast thou made me thus? Paul simply falls back on the Godhood of God. And he says, He is the Maker. We are the creatures. We're to take our places in the dust before Him and be quiet. The potter can make the vessel any way he wants to. You see, brethren, if you're not satisfied with Scripture at that point, you won't be satisfied with anything else that anyone says about the sovereignty of God. Because what Paul has set before us by the inspiration of God the Holy Spirit is that there are some things God does not come off of His throne to answer for us. And He says, bow. Now, the word reprobation is obviously not in this passage. It isn't here. But there's clearly a doctrine set before us that God can make vessels of honor and vessels of destruction, and that He does, and that He prepares them for their ends. The Old Testament word for reprobation, found in Jeremiah 6.30, means to reject, to refuse, to despise. As a matter of fact, we could actually say rather than election and reprobation, we could say election and rejection. That would be correct as well. The New Testament word, reprobate, means to be rejected after a searching test. That's the idea in the word. Rejected after a searching test. Our, our confession, the Second London Confession says, and, and I think this is extremely well said. Listen carefully. This is from chapter 3. And it says, By the decree of God, for the manifestation of His glory, some men and angels are predestinated or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ, to the praise of His glorious grace. Others being left to act in their sin to their just condemnation, to the praise of His glorious justice. So reprobation then is the purpose of God whereby He has determined to pass by certain men with the gift of saving grace and to punish them for their sins to the manifestation of His justice. 
Now, there are two elements to reprobation. First, there's what we refer to as preterition. And this means to pass by. That's what the word means. When we speak of preterition, we mean God's eternal purpose to leave some men in their sins. And then there's condemnation which follows upon that. And that means it's God's purpose ultimately to damn them for their sins. They are not damned because they're not chosen. They are damned because of their sins. God's justice is meted out upon their rebellions against heaven. And it is a true justice from the God who made the heavens and the earth. Now these two elements will help us understand the doctrine of reprobation more clearly, I hope. Preterition is a sovereign act of God and it's rooted in the sovereign will and pleasure of God. Condemnation is a judicial act. Preterition is the sovereign act rooted in God's will where unknown to any of us He has purposed to bring some to life and leave others to just damnation. He has not divulged to us why He has made these choices. We only know this. In in those chosen unto life, there is absolutely nothing which commends them to God. And He does not choose them because they are better, smarter, or anything else than the other. Hath not the potter of the same lump. Those that are chosen are every bit as worthy of damnation as those left in their sins. And were God not to open their hearts, they would be equally damned with those left to themselves. As Ephesians 1 tells us, in whom also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestinated according to the purpose of Him who worketh all things after the counsel of His own will. We do not know why He chooses any to life, But we do know why He condemns. He condemns because of sin. He passes by certain men because He chooses to. He damns those men because they are sinners. The reason for preterition is not known. That is in the mystery of God's sovereign will. But the reason for condemnation, which follows upon that, is known. And it is that men are rebels, God-hating rebels against the Most High. Now, some comparison and contrast of election and a rejection are necessary. Now, listen carefully, because they're not the same thing. Both election and rejection are rooted in the eternal purpose of God. They share this in common. Both are determined by God's sovereign will. They share this in common. 
The Bible does not reveal the reason. Some are chosen and others are rejected, except that God works all things according to the counsel of His own will. They share this in common. Both are purposed in eternity and work out in time. They share that in common. However, in election, God shows mercy. In rejection, He shows justice. In election, God works in His people to make them holy. In rejection, He leads them to their own devices. God is the active agent in His people's holiness. He works in them both to will and to do of His good pleasure. In rejection, man is the active agent of his own sin. God does not sin in the sinner, though He leaves him to his sin. In election, His people are not saved because of their works, but in rejection, men are damned because of theirs. In the elect, God is the author of faith. In the rejected, God is not the author of unbelief. It is their own unbelief. Now, having tried to set that foundation, let us look at the testimony of God's Word. I normally try to begin with the Word of God and simply unfold the passage. But because of the controversial nature of this, I thought it important to have our minds at least on the same page when I say rejection and reprobation. Now, in, in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 30, Israel is called reprobate silver. <clears throat> what we have is a metaphor taken from metal refining. And this is a metaphor that's used throughout the Old Testament. It was one that was uh, well known to Israel. God, through His holy prophet, had preached the word with power and preached mighty judgment upon them. He had melted Israel, so to speak, for the refining. But the refiner's work was in vain because the people were nothing but dross. When the Word of God came, and when they were shown to be what they were, all that came to the top was dross. There was no purity. They were reprobate, rejected, cast away, worthless. Though Israel considered itself silver, the prophet announces she is nothing but rejected, useless silver. This is the idea. Israel did not pass God's test and was cast away. Of course, probably the the most famous example we have is in Exodus regarding Pharaoh. Exodus 3.19 says, And I am sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go. No, not by a mighty hand. Now this is God telling Moses. And this is very, very important. Because what we have here is a vital uh, connection. God had promised Abraham a seed. And He had made a covenant with Abraham. And He said, Your seed 
will be in darkness, in captivity. In, they will be strangers in a, a land that's not their own. And I'm going to bring them out with a high hand. Brethren, that was the prophecy of what God was going to fulfill in redeeming Israel and giving for us a glorious illustration of salvation, of redemption by His wonderful mercy and kindness. And for Him to show His glory, bringing His people out with a high hand, He dealt with Pharaoh in this way. He tells Moses first, the king of Egypt is not going to let you go. But then he tells him why. In chapter 4, verse 21, the Lord said unto Moses, When thou goest to return into Egypt, see that thou do all those wonders before Pharaoh, which I have put in thine hand. But I will harden his heart, that he shall not let the people go. Now three times it is said that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But they are after it has been announced that God is going to harden it. Now, Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. And God spake unto Moses and said unto him, I am the Lord. I appeared unto Abraham, unto Isaac, and unto Jacob by the name of God Almighty. But by my name Jehovah I was not known to them. And I have also established my covenant with them. You see, this is what connects... Uh, what we were talking about. The very thing that we see unfolded in Exodus is God's promise of redemption. And He's going to show His glory by releasing His people from what appears to be an impossible situation. They are a captive nation under the most powerful force on the earth at that time. Pharaoh was a great and mighty king with a great and mighty army. God says, now I'm going to set my people free. But I'm going uh, according to my covenant. <clears throat> I've established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage where they are strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage and I've remembered my covenant. Exodus 7.3 And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. Brethren, this is his purpose. I will harden his heart. He will say, no, you cannot go. And at those points, I will bring my miraculous judgments upon Egypt. God has laid out how the whole thing's going to go. But Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you, that, listen carefully, Pharaoh shall not hearken unto you that I may lay my hand upon Egypt and bring forth mine armies and my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great judgments. He was going to leave this as a testimony for all eternity. And, verse 13 of chapter 7, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he hearkened not unto them, as the Lord hath said. Now, how does God harden someone's heart? I don't know. The Scriptures don't tell us. Most likely, it is God removing all restraint 
of mercy. It is not God going in and sinning in the man's heart. It is God simply removing that which even keeps the man civil so that his own heart manifests its wicked resistance to God. But I will leave you to wrestle with the details on that. Exodus chapter 9, excuse me, Exodus chapter 8, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and hearkened not unto them. And there are many that go, see, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Well, yes, he did. There's no question about that. But that's all in answer to what God has already set in motion. Pharaoh did it. Why are we being told this? Because we're being shown God's sovereignty and Pharaoh's responsibility. <clears throat> Exodus nine thirteen, And the Lord said unto Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For I will at this time send all my plagues upon mine heart and upon thy servants and upon thy people that thou mayest know that there is none like me in all the earth. For now... I will stretch out my hand that I, might, that I may smite thee and thy people with pestilence and thou shalt be cut off from the earth. And in very deed, hear the word of God, brethren, for this cause have I raised thee up for to show in thee my power and that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. When they went into the promised land, Rahab said, We've heard what your God did. We've heard about your God. Brethren, he said his name throughout all the earth. He hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. And Paul turns to this very passage and says in Romans 9.17 For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh Even for the same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Here in the glories of the covenant promise of God we see His sovereign election of the nation of Israel and His redemption of them and His leaving Pharaoh and Egypt in their own wickedness to which He brought His severe judgment. Now if your heart says, that's hard to understand, I say, Amen. But brethren, it's the teaching of the Word of God. And I would rather stand and say, I can't put A, B, C, and D together in all of this. He hasn't given me all of those details. But I'd rather proclaim it to you than say, well, let's just change it so that it feels better. Brethren, what we see set before us is the act which God brings Israel to remembrance of over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. I redeemed you. I redeemed you. You are mine. I brought you out. I brought you out with a high hand. 
and a mighty arm. I saved you. I redeemed you. You are my people. And by that very act of choosing Israel, He left Egypt. What we began with, brethren, we see set before us as plainly as it can be said. He didn't choose Babylon. He didn't choose Assyria. You say, why? All I can say is pray before God and plead with Him. He's not told anyone that I know. But plead with God. You see, these are, these are difficult things to understand. Yes, they are. But brethren, this is the God of Scripture. He is a God in His wise and loving purpose has called some men to life. And He has left some men to their own way. And all I can tell you is that when we look with sobriety at God leading men in their sin, it should set our hearts ablaze to praise Him for His mercy and to plead with Him to show more mercy. It should set our hearts ablaze to take the gospel into the darkness knowing that His people are there. And no matter how Pharaoh Satan may have them bound, He's going to bring His elect free. He will bring them from darkness into light. He will bring them from death unto life. He will bring them to Himself. You say, how do I know if I'm the reprobate? How do I know if I'm the elect? I will tell you what the Bible tells me. Do you see yourself a sinner? Do you see yourself worthy of God's just damnation? Do you know yourself lost? There is a Savior. And God calls them, calls sinners to Him in His mercy. And sinners that repent of their sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ may have glorious hope that they are God's chosen people. Brethren, this doesn't bind up the Gospel. This ought to set us on a holy fire to preach the gospel and to bring this glorious gospel into the darkness and into the Egypt of this world to see the Lord's people set free wherever and whoever and how many soever there are of them. May we not bow our heads and look sheepish when say, are you one of those people who believes in double predestination? We say we believe that God is God and that He saves His people from their sins. Will you come to His Son? If not, I leave you to Him. And if He leaves you in your sin, you have no hope. There is life in Christ, brethren. May we preach it as long as we have breath. And may we realize and recognize that the God who made the heavens and the earth saves sinners.
will conclude this, God willing, next week. Let's pray. Holy Father, who can come into these grounds and not not feel like he ought to take his shoes off? All for us to speak of thy eternal purpose, Father, is so sobering. Father, why? Why have you left people that I know in darkness and taken me out? What I understand less of you leaving them there is you calling me out. And I know this is the word on the lips of all of your people who understand your labor in salvation. Your children can only say, why me? Why was I made to hear thy voice and enter Wilder's room? While thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Oh, Father, how we bless thee for having mercy upon us And we pray that your mercy will go past these four walls into this whole world. May it go into this county, into this city, into this state. And Lord, may we see the glories of thy saving grace manifested. Thank you for having mercy on us. We will ever praise thee for it. And let us plead and pray day by day while we still have breath for those who have not yet fled to thy holy Son. We pray this in thy blessed name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. 
For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.